the book of Revelation startles us because of how vividly it describes the wrath of God in history. Now, our modern world sections off the spiritual from the historical. History deals with the real world out there, while spirituality deals with the abstract world inside, our devotional lives, our time with Jesus. It's very personal, and that is true, but we have to remember that Christ came into the world and not merely into our hearts. His kingdom ripples out and affects the powers and principalities, both invisible and visible. Christianity changed and is changing the world. And when we grasp the historical nature of God's judgments, we're better able to understand just how cataclysmic the destruction of the temple in 70 AD was, just how world-tilting the message of Revelation is. God did not merely destroy a building in 70 AD. He shattered an old corrupt order that was passing away and out of its ashes gave birth to a new one. Out of the old covenant to the new covenant, Christ has come in and affected history and established his reign on the earth. This is Understanding Revelation. Revelation chapter 18 focuses on the reactions of three groups of people as they see the destruction of Jerusalem's temple in 70 AD. We see the kings of the earth, or as we translate it, the land, merchants, and shipmasters and sailors. The chapter breaks down into four sections. First, an angel declares the fall of Babylon, which we established in prior episodes as Jerusalem, verses 1 to 3. Second, a voice calls people out of Jerusalem before its destruction, verses 4 to 8. Third, those three groups mourn outside of Jerusalem, verses 9 to 20. And finally, an angel enacts symbolically the fall of Jerusalem, which is now referred to as Babylon, verses 21 to 24. Let's look at that first part. An angel declares the fall of Babylon, otherwise known as Jerusalem, verses 1 to 3. After this, I saw another angel coming down from heaven, having great authority, and the earth was made bright with his glory. And he called out with a mighty voice, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She has become a dwelling place for demons, a haunt for every unclean spirit, a haunt for every unclean bird, a haunt for every unclean and detestable beast. For all the nations have drunk the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality, and the kings of the earth have committed immorality with her, and the merchants of the earth have grown rich from the power of her luxurious living. Christ warned in Matthew 12, verses 43 to 45, that a man may be cleansed of unclean spirits only to find those same spirits returning sevenfold and plunging him into greater darkness. Jerusalem's fall plays out Jesus' teaching in real time. The temple, once God's dwelling place, now houses demons and unclean spirits, birds and beasts. Jerusalem, God's city, by shedding the blood of martyrs, becomes like pagan Babylon. God called Jerusalem to be a light to the pagans, but instead she gets the nations drunk on the wine of her sexual immorality, which is a euphemism for her adultery with God, her turning away and spurning the revelation of God in Jesus Christ. And her alliance with pagan Rome, illustrated in the prior chapter with the whore of Babylon riding on the beast, her alliance with pagan Rome against the church underscores that adultery. And much of the New Testament focuses on the first century hostility between Judaism and Christianity because they're both operating alongside one another. But the destruction of the temple furthers that divide in an unmistakable way. 
there is going to be a clean break now between Christianity and Judaism because the center of Judaism's religious system, the temple, is going to be removed. But hope is not lost for those who dwell in Jerusalem. That gets to the second part. A voice calls people out of Jerusalem, verses 4 to 8. Then I heard another voice from heaven saying, Come out of her, my people, lest you take part in her sins, lest you share in her plagues. For her sins are heaped high as heaven, and God has remembered her iniquities. Pay her back as she herself has paid back others, and repay her double for her deeds. Mix a double portion for her in the cup she mixed. As she glorified herself and lived in luxury, so give her a like measure of torment and mourning. Since in her heart, she says, I sit as a queen, I am no widow, and mourning I shall never see. For this reason, her plagues will come in a single day, death and mourning and famine, and she will be burned up with fire, for mighty is the Lord God who has judged her. The call of God to come out of her, my people, evokes God calling Rahab out of Jericho before its destruction. Jesus, the new Joshua, leads his people against the wicked city of Jericho. Before the walls come down, he calls out Rahab to safety. And the Rahabs who flee from Jerusalem, the new Babylon, which is the new Jericho, they will find safety outside the city. There's a similar call. He's calling for another exodus. Come out of Jerusalem. She's about to be destroyed, but if you heed my words, you will be spared from destruction. God repays twofold for the sins of Jerusalem, which pile up to heaven. But God crushes her pride like Babel. Jerusalem's wealth gained from the corruption of the temple and alliance with Rome against the church will fall back on her head in the form of martyr blood and judgment. And the world around Jerusalem takes note. So we have this call, come out of Jerusalem. It's about to be destroyed. There's a time to repent. There's a time now to escape this coming judgment. But after that, you're going to face the wrath of God as he destroys the temple and ruins Jerusalem. And we're going to see a a, a moment now, three groups reacting to the destruction of Babylon slash Jerusalem. Kings, merchants, and shipmasters mourn outside Jerusalem, verses 9 to 20. And the kings of the earth who committed sexual immorality and lived in luxury with her will weep and wail over her when they see the smoke of her burning. They will stand far off in fear of her torment and say, Alas, alas, you great city, you mighty city, Babylon, for in a single hour your judgment has come. And the merchants of the earth weep and mourn for her since no one buys their cargo anymore. Cargo of gold, silver, jewels, pearl, fine linen, purple cloth, silk, scarlet cloth, all kinds of scented wood, all kinds of articles of ivory, all kinds of articles of costly wood, bronze, iron, and marble, cinnamon, spice, incense, myrrh, frankincense, wine, oil, fine flour, wheat, cattle, and sheep, horses and chariots and slaves, that is, human souls. The fruit for which your soul longed has gone from you, and all your delicacies and your splendors are lost to you, never to be found again." The merchants of these wares who gained wealth from her will stand far off in fear of her torment, weeping and mourning aloud. Alas, alas, for the great city that was clothed in fine linen, in purple and scarlet, adorned with gold, with jewels, and with pearls, for in a single hour all this wealth has been laid waste. And all shipmasters and seafaring men, sailors, and all whose trade is on the sea stood far off, and cried out as they saw the smoke of her burning. What city was like the great city? And they threw dust on their heads as they wept and mourned, crying out, Alas, alas, for the great city where all who had ships at sea grew rich by her wealth, for in a single hour she has been laid waste. Rejoice over her, O heaven, and you saints and apostles and prophets, for God has given judgment for you against her. 
So three groups of people respond in similar ways to the destruction of Jerusalem. The kings of the earth slash land, the merchants, and the shipmasters and sailors. These represent Jews spread throughout the Roman Empire, watching the destruction of Jerusalem. Jerusalem sits at the center, not of an economic, but a spiritual ecosystem, much like Mecca does for Muslims or the Vatican for Catholics. What happens in Jerusalem reverberates throughout the empire. So this has a splash zone. This has a ripple effect into the world. Now, Peter Lighthart suggests that the reaction of these three groups hints at the beginnings of repentance. Verse 20 is key. Rejoice over her, O heaven, and you saints and apostles and prophets, for God has given judgment for you against her. Now, here's the question. Does this come from the voice of the angel or from the shipmasters? Well, it looks like from the context, it's coming from the shipmasters. In verse 21, it says, then a mighty angel, and then the angel speaks, which means prior to saying then an angel speaks, someone else was speaking, which means that the shipmasters are actually rejoicing. They're rejoicing in the judgment of Jerusalem. They agree with God's judgment and call on the heavens to rejoice. This might be the first step to their repentance. Alistair Roberts suggests that the kings of the land are Jewish leaders in Israel. The merchants are Jewish missionary-like teachers to the Gentiles and perhaps a few God-fearing Gentiles, like we see with Cornelius in the book of Acts. And the shipmasters and sailors are the Jews spread out in the Gentile nations. Remember, the sea represents and symbolizes the nations. They distance themselves from the judgment of Jerusalem and they mourn their own complicity in her sins while also agreeing with God's judgment. The sheer length of Revelation 18 indicates that this chapter is significant within the book's narrative structure. Why devote all this time to these three groups and all this repetition and these patterns? What is the deal? What is John trying to communicate? Well, remember, John opens the book of Revelation in chapter 1 with a composite of two key Old Testament passages. Daniel 7.13, when a son of man comes on a cloud and receives a kingdom from the Ancient of Days, which is God. And Zechariah 12.10, when God pours out his spirit in grace and mercy upon those who have pierced Christ. In fact, he takes the part where he says they will look on him whom they have pierced. Now, Revelation 18 is referring probably to that moment. What's interesting here is that when we see the Old Testament passage quoted in Revelation 1, it seems like, oh, they're talking about Jesus. Jesus is the son of man who ascends into heaven and receives a kingdom. And Jesus is the pierced one whom all the tribes of the earth or the land are going to look upon and mourn. So why would Revelation 18, which talks about Jews around the Roman Empire mourning over the destruction of Jerusalem? What is the mourning? So who is being pierced that causes them to mourn in repentance and realize the wrong that they've done? Well, again, Peter Lightheart, I think, is helpful with this. The people who are pierced are Christ's own body, his church. In other words, Zechariah is not only fulfilled in people seeing Christ pierced, but also the Jews seeing that they have pierced the church in their persecution. And we see in Acts chapter 9, Christ identifies with the church. When he talks with Saul, the church's piercing is his piercing. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And so this is a theme in Revelation where as Christ goes, so does the church. Christ ascends and so does the church with the martyrs, the 144,000 that are sealed. Christ is glorified and we too will be glorified. And also when Christ is pierced, we share that piercing so that when the church is attacked and persecuted, Christ is personally affected by that. He is offended by that. He takes it as a personal insult. And so what we see here is possibly a fulfillment of Zechariah chapter 12, verse 10, when the tribes of the land, the Jews, 
look upon the piercing of the church and they see the judgment upon Jerusalem for piercing the church and they mourn, they mourn. Now let's look at this last part, verses 21 to 24. An angel enacts the fall of Jerusalem. Then a mighty angel took up a stone like a great millstone and threw it into the sea, saying, So will Babylon the great city be thrown down with violence and will be found no more. And the sound of harpists and musicians, of flute players and trumpeters will be heard in you no more. And a craftsman of any craft will be found in you no more. And the sound of the mill will be heard in you no more. And the light of the lamp will shine in you no more. And the voice of bridegroom and bride will be heard in you no more. For your merchants were the great ones of the earth, and all the nations were deceived by your sword. And in her was found the blood of prophets and of saints and of all who have been slain on earth. So Babylon will be cast down like a millstone into the sea by violence, causing the life of its city to go dead. The music, craftsmen, mills, lamplights, and the voices of bridegroom and bride, the things that make up the vitality of a city will be silenced. The merchants and the nations who were deceived by sorcery, much like Pharaoh's men were deceived by sorcery, are going to be shamed. Jerusalem turned Egypt is gonna carry the blood of the prophets and saints like Pharaoh carried the blood of the Egyptian uh, or rather the, the Jewish children that he had murdered. Jerusalem continued to exist after the temple's destruction, but no longer functioned as the center of a religious ecosystem. So Rome replaced Jerusalem with Aelia Capitolina, and then centuries later, Jerusalem resurfaced as a Christian city. But as far as the old covenant city of the Judaic system, it no longer functions as the center of that spiritual ecosystem. And what we see here is God answering the cries of his martyrs from the bottom of the altar in the fifth seal of Revelation chapter six. And he cast the millstone of Jerusalem into the sea. Remember, he told those martyrs to wait for the fullness of the 144,000 sealed martyrs to come in. And after that, 12 chapters later, the martyrs are in and now God's full judgment can come, culminating in the destruction of Jerusalem. And the millstone imagery is important. Remember that Jesus said that uh, for false teachers, better a millstone be tied around your neck and you drown in the ocean than you to lead little ones astray. And I think there's a judgment there that the corrupt priesthood of Israel, the Pharisees and that whole system, they had become corrupt and they were leading people astray. They were false teachers in their rejection of Christ. And now the millstone has been hung and Jerusalem itself and the temple is cast into the sea. Paul warns against peddling God's word for profit in 2 Corinthians, and he knows that spiritual goods can be used for corrupt gain. The religious and the commercial are intertwined in many unhealthy ways today. We are not above this corruption. If we find ourselves complicit, we ought to mourn in repentance and fear the judgment of God. God knows what's going on with his church, and he does bring judgments in time and space. And this is important for us to recognize as we face increasing challenges in the church and in the culture at large. We have to recognize that God is a God of justice. God is a God of holiness. And when he sees false teaching, he treats it very seriously. And that should be a warning to us, but also an encouragement that God is on the side of truth and that the destruction of Jerusalem is a foretaste of the final judgment of all mankind. And we have to ask ourselves, are we ready? Are we gonna heed the call when God says, come out of the city, my people, come out of darkness, come out of sin. There is still a chance to experience your own exodus out of slavery to sin and death into the freedom of life in Christ. 